Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Michael Harris, author of Germantown. Michael Harris is the author of Germantown, A Military History at the Battle of Philadelphia, October 4th, 1777. How have historians viewed the Battle of Germantown? How, did, how does it fit into the larger historical picture of the war? Um, it's usually overshadowed by Saratoga um, and even Brandywine. But when you start to really dive into the primary sources, um, the French government in particular at the time viewed it almost as important as Saratoga for creating the alliance um, between our two governments. Now, uh, give us a sense of what was going on in the revolution at the time uh, that this battle took place. Okay, so the, the, the Battle of Germantown is part of a larger campaign known as the Philadelphia Campaign in 1777, where uh, William Howe, the British commander, took a uh, um, about an 18,000-man force by sea from New York up the Chesapeake Bay, um, and then through a series of maneuvers and engagements, he, he captures Philadelphia um, in, on September 26, 1777, and Germantown takes place not long after that. But at the same time, there's also a campaign taking place um, in upstate New York, where uh, another British general under his name is John Burgoyne leads a, a force south from Canada, um, captures Fort Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain, and ultimately ends up in an engagement with other continental troops at Saratoga. So uh, it's very important to realize that the Saratoga campaign is taking place at the same time as the fighting around Philadelphia. So the early part of the war uh, took place in the area around Boston and along uh, Long Island and New York City. Uh, why did why was the shift made down to Pennsylvania? That's a good question. Um, at the end of the 1776 campaign, um, after the Battle of Long Island um, and White Plains and the capture of Fort Washington on upstate Manhattan or uh, uh, the upper end of Manhattan Island. Um, William Howe, the British commander in North America, was sort of shocked at how easily he pushed the Continentals across New Jersey. And he started to change his thinking, because originally the whole point of capturing New York was to divide New England off from the rest of the colonies. And so if they could capture the Lake Champlain-Hudson River corridor, they, in theory, would split off New England, which many in the British government thought was the causes of all the problems. So New York, the capture of New York was a, a, a phase of that plan. But then Washington retreats across New Jersey, and they're sort of easily able to push them across the Delaware River in early December, or mid-December, 1776. And so Howe started to shift his thinking, where maybe I can go capture Philadelphia, where in the traditional European mindset, if you capture your enemy's capital, you win the war. And so he shifts his thinking into, for 1777, I'm gonna go capture Philadelphia, but I'll get back in time to help Burgoyne later in the campaign season. Um, and so that's sort of the, the origin of the, of the Philadelphia campaign. So at this time, uh, what was the state of George Washington's army? Um, 
rebuilding, starting over in a sense. Um, the army that fought in 1776 um, had one year enlistments. And so throughout the, the tail end of the 1776 campaign, right on up through the battles of Trenton and Princeton, they're, they're just bleeding soldiers. They're just leaving and going home. And so over the winter, um, while they're camped up in Morristown, New Jersey, they have to almost start from scratch. They create three-year enlistments or for the war, um, and they create new regiments and brigades and divisions. And while some of the officers and NCOs do re-enlist um, from the 1776 campaign, many of the guys that fight in 77 um, had not fought in 1776. It's, it's basically a brand new army that they're training on the fly because they're not going to get that proper training until Valley Forge after the campaign's over. So it's a very um, infantile army in a sense, logistically, tactically, uh, training-wise, experience-wise, that they go through this campaign with. So you mentioned that the you know Valley Forge is like the key moment for professionalized training. Mm. Why, why weren't they able to train like that before? Because the army, they, they're not together. So when they go into winter quarters after the battles of Trenton and Princeton, um, there's, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but there's, there's less than 3,000 guys. Um, and so they have to build that army up. And literally throughout the year, there are recruits coming into the camps. When they embark on the campaign in the early stages of it um, in June, there's 11,000 of them. By the time they get the Brandywine, there's 16,000 of them. Um, and there's still roughly 15 to 16,000 of them at Germantown. Um, so there's just never enough downtime to properly train them. So they're getting experience literally as time goes on in these minor skirmishes and engagements and the larger battles like Brandywine and Germantown, but they're not gonna get that professional training um, until Valley Forge. Had George Washington commanded a force of this size before? The army is pretty big for the, the, the 1776 campaign. Again, it's not my area of expertise. And off the top of my head, it's um, numbers wise, it's a little bit bigger. Um, but there's never that, they're never all together for one battle. Um, in the in the 76 campaign um like the, the 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 army on paper is much larger but there's uh they never get 15 16,000 of them into a single engagement like they will at brandywine in germantown so the, the two commanders that that we'll be talking about here george washington of course and then william howe on the british side mm -hmm. uh what were their personalities like what, what kind of a commander was william howe that's a good question Howe is more of um an administrative guy um, he's also um, a brilliant tactician. He had learned in the French and Indian War that, um, that they couldn't use traditional European tactics against the Native Americans and the French. And so he develops this light infantry concept where the guys fight at arm's length or two arm's length um, and using the woods and the terrain to their advantage. He actually writes drill manuals in between the French and Indian War and the Revolution that is adopted by the British military. And so a lot of those um, ideas will infiltrate the British Army prior to the, to the American Revolution. So he, he's, he's brilliant in that way, um, but he also knows his opponent. Um, he knows he doesn't want to make a frontal assault. Uh, he had witnessed the disaster at Bunker Hill early in the war where the British lost a lot of hard to replace uh, well-trained troops in a frontal assault. And so he's gonna uh, adopt this, this flanking tactic throughout the war. 
He uses it multiple times, um, including at the Battle of Long Island and Brandywine, where he, he, he sends a, um, you know, maybe half of his force um, into a, a, what's going to look like a frontal assault to Washington, but that's really just a delaying tactic while a, a, another chunk of the army, roughly half, is going to make a wide flanking maneuver to get behind Washington's rear. Um, that's how he wins Long Island, that's how he wins Brandywine, because he doesn't want to make that frontal assault. Um, he's trusted by his men, he's well respected, he's a member uh, of parliament. Um, so, you know, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a guy that's trusted and is gonna, but he's also careful because he doesn't want to lose too many guys that are hard to replace. So he also has a, a history after all victory of not following up that victory with a strong pursuit because he wants his men to recover, get resupplied, and not string them out too much where they might die of fatigue or disease. So he also comes under criticism for that. Uh, Washington does not have the experience of Hal. He's not, um, he had not gone to any military schools. He was not a British Army officer prior to the American Revolution. Now, he does lead militia forces famously in the French and Indian War, but never large forces like he will have to deal with in, in the American Revolution. There's, he deals with a lot of distrust amongst um, senior and mid-level officers. There'll be a, movement, uh, a movement to remove him from command towards the tail end of the Philadelphia campaign through the early stages of Valley Forge, something known as the Conway Cabal, because he's not trusted by everybody. Um, the government doesn't fully trust him. Um, because he really hasn't won a significant victory. Um, and uh, the Philadelphia campaign does not help that cause. He's not going to really win a significant victory in this, in this campaign either. Um, so it, it's sort of two very different men, um, one heavily trusted by his troops, one not so much, uh, one that the government backs, one that the government doesn't really back. Um, but the, the end of the campaign sort of changes all that. Howe's going to resign in frustration and go home. Washington's going to defeat the Conway Cabal and solidify his command coming out of Valley Forge. So as uh, European troops are coming over to North America, you mentioned some of the different tactics that Howe had developed during the mm -hmm. French Indian War, but how did things like infrastructure, uh, road conditions affect how a European army would fight? Um, a great deal. Um, uh, the British Army relies heavily on their logistics, their lines of supply. Um, going all the way back to England. So they rely on shipments of supplies, food, ammunition, uh, equipment, new uniforms coming over by sea, um, much of which could be spoiled or rotten before it even got here. Um, and then the road conditions, it, you know, there's very, very, there, for, there's no paved roads. There's some cobblestone streets in America's cities at the time, but, you know, all the country roads are are dirt or mud in the rainy season. There's no rail lines, um, so you're relying, uh, there's no canals, so you're relying heavily on shipments from sea or by river to resupply for the British Army. So they're, they're hesitant to stray too far from a navigable river, which is why at the end of their sea voyage up the Chesapeake Bay, they're almost immediately making plans to get back to the Delaware River which would turn into a new line of supply, because once they venture too far away from the Chesapeake, they lose their line of supply. Um, and so it's a major hindrance for British forces operating in North America 
they can't venture too far inland towards American supply bases or inland cities like Reading or Lancaster because they would venture too far from their line of supply. Now in the book, uh, throughout the book, you list all the different units that were fighting in, in uh, during this campaign. And some of the British units have uh, interesting names. Uh, one was a Regiment of Foot. What, what type of a unit was that? It's just a standard infantry regiment. It's just that they're, they're to differentiate from a, from a cavalry or dragoon regiment or an artillery regiment, an infantry regiment or a foot is what we would think of as an infantry regiment today. They, they, they march everywhere, they walk everywhere, um, uh, and they fight uh, basically shoulder to shoulder in lines of battle with muskets, uh, with fixed bayonets. Now another type of unit were the Grenadiers. Grenadier is an elite company uh, or group of soldiers within a regiment of foot. So. Um, one of the 10 regiments within a regiment of foot was a grenadier company. I'm sorry, one of the 10 companies is a, is a grenadier company. Uh, these were traditionally the taller men of the regiment. Um, there was height requirements. They wore tall bearskin caps to, to make them sort of even more intimidating than they already were. And they're called grenadiers because um, earlier in history they actually carried a primitive form of grenade. Um, now that had been phased out prior to the revolution, but the name it stuck. Um, and that what, Hal, what William Howe does, he actually took the Grenadier companies from their parent regiments and brigaded them into their own battalions. So you had whole battalions of 15 and 16 companies of Grenadiers detached from their parent regiments that fought as, a, as, as their own units. Um, but they were a, an elite force within the British Army. And uh, we'll do one more here. So there were others called Fusiliers. Fusiliers um, traditionally were escorts for artillery columns or artillery regiments. Um, that's not really how they're going to be used in the American Revolution, but that's where the name comes from, um, a Fusilier regiment. Um, they're going to fight just like other infantry regiments in the Revolution and not really as escorts to artillery like they would have been used, say, in European wars. Now you also mentioned in the book, you talk uh, about regimental colonels in the British system, that they're not necessarily the people who are commanding on the battlefield. Correct. In fact, they rarely do, if ever. Um, colonels held um, honorary titles of general, and they would normally exercise that rank in campaigns. So I'm trying to think of a good example. I believe John Burgoyne, hopefully I have this right, was the colonel of the 16th Light Dragoons. Um, but he actually serves as a general commanding the, the, the Northern Army in the Saratoga campaign. And they're all like that. And I, I, don't, I can't think of them all off the top of my head, but Corn, Charles Cornwallis was a colonel of a regiment, and William Howe was a colonel of a regiment. And their, their pay is actually based off being a colonel of a regiment, not based on being a general in a campaign. And uh, were these units, uh, were these colonels professionally trained? Uh, how much merit was involved in their selection? Um, some were. Some had gone to military schools in Europe, but not all. Um, all ranks in the British Army were based off of purchase. So if you were from a wealthy family, you could buy a lieutenancy or a captaincy in a regiment. Um, and, and then it was also a way to make money because you could sell that commission to buy a higher ranking commission if there was a vacancy. Um, so it really depends. Um, some did go to military schools, especially in the artillery ranks. They went to artillery school. Some, some went to um, other schools in Europe. But you didn't have to have that military background to buy a, uh, a commission in a British regiment. 
Now, the British forces also included uh, Germans, and uh, we tend to just think of them as Hessians, but they were, it was more complicated than that, right? It's very complicated. Now, the, the bulk of the Germanic soldiers that serve in the Philadelphia campaign are, are true Hessians from Hesse Hanau or Hesse Castle, but there were other Germanic troops that served in America uh, from Ansbach, um, from Waldeck, from Brunswick. Um, and we, th we, they sort of traditionally get called Hessian because the bulk of the troops that came over were true Hessians, but it's sort of a myth because they weren't all Hessians. Um, but in, in the Philadelphia campaign, other than a couple Ansbach regiments and uh, a company of Ansbach Jagers, they were all true Hessians. How was the, the German military uh, leadership different from the British military leadership? It's not that different. They're, they tend to be more trained, the Hessian officers in military schools, um, they, trend, they tend to be more from nobility in the Hessian regiments, the officers do. Um, but in terms of, of structure of regiments and, and, and role and function, it's not that drastically different from the British Army. Now, the American side uh, was made up of a variety of troops as well. There are often militia units that were mm -hmm. part of, of these campaigns. Uh, who raised the militia units? The states, or yeah, they were states at that point. Um, the states were... Or, had a malicious system going back decades um, pr prior to the French and Indian War. The exception to that, and, and one that affects the Philadelphia campaign, is, is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania does not have an official militia law until early in 1777. The, um, the Quaker influence on the Pennsylvania government prior to that, because of their pacifism, did not create an official militia system. Now, there was an ad hoc group that you could call militia um, that were known as associators that sort of created their own military bodies, but they were not officially sanctioned by the government. Um, and so the problem with the Pennsylvania militia, and it's going to affect the Philadelphia campaign, is there was no official system until right before the, the, the campaign begins. And so they were, they were just sort of getting up to speed to creating uh, militia roles at the, at the county and township level. And um, there was exceptions to it, and they were still working out all those details and kinks. And so there was a huge issue with the Pennsylvania militia throughout the Philadelphia campaign. Now, how did the Continental Congress's concerns about standing armies affect the relationship between militias and the development of Continental Army? It does. The, the, the Continental Congress overall did not really want to create a long-standing traditional army in the European sense, something that Washington argues for throughout the war that we need a permanent standing army and, and to not rely on militias. Um, now the government, because of the, their democratic principles, want to rely more on militia forces to fight the war than a true standing army. Luckily over time and through Washington's influence, that will sort of create a blend of using militia with Continental. The, in Washington's view, the issue with militia is they're not a permanent force, they come and go. They do a 30-day stint or a 60-day stint, and they rotate home, and they're replaced by a new group of troops. And one of the problems with that is you might just start to be getting those militia forces trained, and then they go home, the new crop comes in, and you've got to train a whole new group of guys. And so it didn't create an effective fighting force or a permanent fighting force, um, which is why Washington really wanted to go with a permanent continental force. Now, a lot of the imagery surrounding the Continental Army we're, we're used to seeing uh, soldiers wearing kind of a buff and blue uniform, but you say in the book that it was a little bit more varied than that. If we saw Washington's army marching through the streets of, or the roads of Pennsylvania, what, what kind of, uh, what would we have seen? 
It's a real mix. Now, by regulation, by government regulation, um, the uniforms were supposed to be dependent upon what region of the country they came from. So, for example, the Mid-Atlantic troops, Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, um, and uh, the Pennsylvania troops were supposed to wear blue with red facings or red trim. Um, Virginia troops were supposed to wear blue with white facings, um, et cetera. And there's other examples of that. But they were almost never fully equipped with what they were supposed to wear. So some of the troops might actually wear, be wearing what they were supposed to wear. Some might be wearing militia uniforms from before the war or earlier in the war. Others might be just wearing what they had at home, hunting frocks or their civilian clothing, because the Army was never properly uniformed at this point of the war. Now you also talk about uh, during some of these battles that there were some units, that, uh, Continental units, wearing red uniforms. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, there's, there's instances where uh, supply ships for the British Army are captured by privateers, and then they would find um, either uniforms or, or bolts of cloth for making British uniforms that they would convert in the Continental uniforms just because uh, the American troops were so desperate for clothing. So there's definitely instances of that. Um, I know there's um, troops within the 4th Light Dragoons that uh, were supposed to wear, uh, um, I think it's green uniforms off the top of my head, but they were wearing captured uniforms of the 16th Light Dragoons of the British Army, which created confusion several times during the campaign. So as uh, Howe's forces leave New York uh, by boat, uh, do they come up the Delaware River, or do they, um, some of them go up to the Chesapeake River? Or Chesapeake um, initially Bay? they do um, enter the Delaware, the, 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 the Delaware Bay, I should say. Um, at the end of July 1777, but because of some false information they get, intelligence they get there, they do not continue up the Delaware. They choose go, to go back out to sea. The whole fleet does, um, and they're gonna, it's going to cause them to spend um, roughly another month at sea going around the Delmarva Peninsula and up the Chesapeake Bay before landing at the end of August um, near modern Elkton, Maryland. So uh, once Howe's troops are ashore there at Elkton, where, where do they go? Um, there's some initial maneuvering through northeastern Maryland um, and northern Delaware. There's a, a minor engagement at a place called Cooch's Bridge in northern Delaware on the Christiana River. Um, and then they ultimately, the two armies are going to maneuver out of northern Delaware, roughly parallel to each other up opposite sides of the Brandywine River, crossing the Delaware state line into Pennsylvania. Uh, the American Army will on the September 9th. The British Army kind of between September 9th and, and 10th, um, they cross the, the, the state line and form up uh, uh, Washington's Army, roughly in the Chad's Ford area, and the British Army will camp um, in Kennett Square. Now, when Howe's forces left New York, did George Washington have any idea where they were going? Not initially. Um, the, the, the lack or the limited size of the Continental Navy does not allow them to really follow where that fleet goes, that British fleet. So they're going to rely upon spotters along the coastline to hopefully spot the fleet from the coastline. Um, and it'll take a while. Um, it won't be till they are spotted past, passing Little Egg Harbor on the New Jersey shore that Washington shifts from um, basically the Hudson River Valley and starts marching south across the across northern New Jersey. And then um, it becomes known that they do enter the Delaware Bay briefly and Washington starts to concentrate in the Trenton area. 
But when they go back out to sea around the Delmarva Peninsula, it's going to take them a while to realize what the British are doing. And so Washington hesitates uh, camping along the Neshaminy Creek north of Philadelphia for, for a significant period of time. Um, and it's not till they are f fairly well up the Chesapeake before he realizes that they're heading towards the upper Chesapeake and marches down through Philadelphia and basically starts to enter northern Delaware the same day the British are offloading near Elkton, Maryland. So how was Washington uh, approaching uh, Howe's forces? Was he planning to directly attack them or was he more harassing them? Um, that's a good question. Um, from most of the early phases of the campaign, it's about harassment. He, he's not prepared, he knows his army's not ready to bring on a, 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 an assault, an offensive operation. So they're using uh, small-scale operations to slow down the British forces, especially when they were still in northern New Jersey. He'll do that again in northern Delaware, northeastern Maryland. And then he, um, he realizes politically he can't give up Philadelphia without a fight. Um, but he wants to fight a defensive battle, so he wants to use a natural barrier to force the British to cross a water body against, um, in the face of his troops. So he tries to do that behind the Red Clay Creek in northern Delaware, but the, William Howe doesn't want any part of that, and that's why they cross into Pennsylvania. The Brandywine River is the next opportunity for that uh, natural barrier that you would need to use a ford, uh, a shallow spot to cross. Um, and so Washington uses the hills on the east side of the Brandywine, defending the fords he knew about to, to try to force the British into an assault against his forces. Now you wrote a book on the Battle of the Brandywine as well. You've been on this program to, to talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, what was significant about that battle? Uh, Washington basically gets flanked again. That's off the top of my head, the sixth or seventh time William Howe does it to him. Um, and that battle, um, that loss for Washington is going to directly lead to um, the capture of Philadelphia. Now, there's some other uh, minor uh, things that are going to take place between September 11th and September 26th that I do cover in the new book. That, um, but ultimately, that loss is what leads to the capture of Philadelphia. Now, you mentioned these flanking movements that, that Howard made. Uh, should Washington have been able to predict those? Uh, he should have because it's not, it wasn't a new tactic that Hal had done. Hal did it to him at Long Island. He did it to him at White Plains. He does it to him at Cooch's Bridge. He does it to him in northern Delaware. Uh, he do, it, it wasn't a new maneuver. He should at least been, have been looking for it. And uh, one of the reasons I fault Washington for Brandywine is there were intelligence reports the morning of the battle coming in that there was a flanking column out there. And Washington hesitates and waits, in my opinion, entirely too long to react to those reports. And when he does, it, it's too late, and he, he ends up in a defeat there. Now, before the, the actual battle in Germantown took place, uh, from Brandywine, there was a lot of maneuvering in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Uh, how did George Washington make a decision what to do, whether to protect Philadelphia or protect his sources of supply? It was not. It couldn't have been an easy decision. Now, he doesn't actually write about it. Um, so we can only surmise, but he, he's basically left with horrendous de decision. Um, politically, from the Continental Congress's point of view, he, he can't give up Philadelphia without a fight. Um, but at the same time, he gets maneuvered into a position where he's, he's left with moving to protect Philadelphia or moving to protect supply bases in the P Pennsylvania backcountry, places like York, Lancaster, Reading, 
uh, even Bethlehem. Um, because if he maneuvers to protect those, he's giving up Philadelphia. However, if he maneuvers to protect Philadelphia, he's going to lose those, th that, those backcountry settlements, those major supply centers. And ultimately, Hal's still going to come from Philadelphia whether or not Washington mo moves to protect those backcountry. And so he, he, he's, he's left with a decision um, that he, he's, he's forced to give up Philadelphia without a second fight because he needs to protect those backcountry settlements, which in his mind militarily are more important than Philadelphia. And he, and he is right about that. Now, your book is filled with quotes from letters, journals, diaries. Uh, a lot of the participants in this campaign seem to write a lot. Uh, thankfully, otherwise it would be an impossible task. Um, yeah, so it, it's um, mostly officers, unfortunately. Um, lots of diaries or letters home uh, can be found in archives today or, or different uh, uh, libraries. There's not as much from uh, the enlisted lower ranking uh, men, very few of that stuff. If they did write, uh, very little of it survives or has been found. Um, but you could never tell the story without those di diaries and letters. So when there's a defeat uh, for of the Continental Army, such as a Brandywine, uh, how does the Continental Congress react to something like that? Uh, not well. Um, they actually initiate uh, both after Brandywine, um, after the Battle of the Clouds, um, and also after Paoli, there is um, inv uh, investigations launched, sometimes by Congress, sometimes by the Army under pressure from Congress, to, uh, through courts of inquiries or court marshals of certain officers, trying to find blame for the defeats. So there's, there's uh, especially after Brandywine, there's anger from um, North Carolina congressman named, um, of course I can't think of it. There's a congressman from North Carolina who um, initiates an investigation and leads to the court martial of John Sullivan, who this congressman uh, uh, blames for or the defeat at Brandywine. It's not John Sullivan's fault. It's one of the division commanders, but um, that leads to a court martial. Uh, General Wayne uh, is going to face a court martial for the Battle of Paoli. Um, there's another one. Um, General Maxwell is accused of drunkenness at Brandywine in the Battle of the Clouds. He's going to face a court martial. Um, and I know we haven't got to Germantown yet, but Adam Stephen, another division commander, is going to face a court martial for drunkenness at Germantown as well. So after Brandywine, did uh, Washington's forces retreat in disarray? Did uh, Howe follow up? What happened? Um, luckily, they do. It's not a route. Like, it's not like a route, if you're familiar with the, the Civil War, like a first bull run route where it's just utter chaos. Um, they do somewhat orderly retreat, mostly down the same road to Chester the night after the battle. Uh, Washington's able to sort of regroup the next morning and retreat further. Um, so it's not like um, the army completely falls apart and, and he can't get the regiments back together. That's not the case. By the next morning, most of the army is regrouped and they're going to start retreating to the north side of the Schuylkill River. Now, there were two other smaller battles that took place between Brandywine and Germantown. Uh, you mentioned one of them, the Battle of the Clouds. What was that? So Washington's going to maneuver. Um, let me back up. William Howe stays on the Brandywine battlefield for five days, um, both regrouping, gathering supplies from the countryside because he's got those supply issues. Um, he also wants to um, occupy Wilmington, Delaware, to wait to await the fleet that's coming back around the Delmarva Peninsula. He needs a, a, a port for the fleet to meet up with him. 
He sends his wounded to, to, to uh, Wilmington. He sends the American prisoners from the battle to Wilmington. Um, so that takes some time. It's a five-day period. Um, and then he's going to start moving north towards the Schuylkill River. The um, Washington, during that five-day period, um, is moving a lot. Um, initially, they moved north of the Schuylkill River to regroup and sort of lick their wounds in the Germantown area before remaneuvering to block Howe's path to the Schuylkill River. Because much like the Brandywine, he wants to block Howe's access to the Schuylkill River fords because he can't get to Philadelphia without crossing the Schuylkill. It's important to realize that Philadelphia at the time uh, was a much smaller city than it is today, and it sat on a peninsula formed by the Delaware and the Schuylkill River. So uh, you had to cross the Schuylkill to get to, the, to Philadelphia. And so um, Washington regroups, recrosses the Schuylkill River um, where Maniunk is today, and then he, he maneuvers out roughly what's today modern-day Route 30 to get in a blocking position roughly where Immaculata College is today uh, to block the, act, the, road, the road juncture to the Schuylkill River fords. And so the day Wash or um, Howe is leaving the, Brand, the, the Brandywine region, he's moving up these roads towards where Immaculata College is today while Washington is sort of moving south into a blocking position and they get into this what's known as a meeting engagement. They weren't expecting to find each other that day and they run into each other on two different roads on what's known as the South Valley Hills just south of Immaculata College and you have this this sort of running fight develops and a, and a rainstorm at the same time. It's why it's called the Battle of the Clouds. A massive, uh, what we now believe is a nor'easter, breaks out a massive rainstorm, um, soaks the ammunition of both armies, making the guns useless. And so uh, Washington actually finds himself in a bad spot because the roads are turning into quagmires. His army's not fully deployed, um, and most of his army is stacked up on roads in the Great Valley below the hills and he needs to get them out of there because he, he has no ammunition. Um, the British are bearing down on him with bayonets. And if he doesn't get his army out of these, this quagmire, it, it, it's going to turn bad. Luckily, the British do not pursue because of the muddy roads. And Washington's able to extricate his army out of the bad situation. Now, the other battle that uh, occurred between Brandywine and Germantown was Paoli, mm -hmm. often called a massacre uh, mm -hmm. of Anthony Wayne's troops. What happened there? So Washington pulls out of there to, to get to a resupply of ammunition, initially f to the far northwestern corner of Chester County, but he leaves Anthony Wayne's division behind. Um, they, they, the, the plan sort of is, there's, there's a couple reasons Wayne's left behind. Um, there's Maryland militia that are marching up um, from the Oxford area, Oxford PA area, that, you know, coming up from Maryland. They need somebody to link up with that Maryland militia. But he also wants to harass William Howe when he starts to move towards the Schuylkill River forts. So Wayne is going to maneuver into um, the modern Malvern area for two reasons, to wait for the Maryland militia, and then when Howe starts to move towards the Schuylkill River forts to attack his rear as they're trying to cross the Schuylkill River. At least that was the plan. Meanwhile, Washington resupplies. Uh, uh, maneuvers north uh, of the Schuylkill River again to, to, to block the Schuylkill River fords between roughly Norristown and Phoenixville today um, and wait for Howe to move. Well, Howe, there's a lot of loyalists 
in the Chester County area or, or people that were loyal to the British Crown. Well, they know Wayne is back where he's at. And so they inform Hal of, his, of this force that's behind his camps. And so Hal realizes he can't maneuver towards the Schuylkill um, until he deals with Wayne's force. And so he, sent, he orders an, a column under Charles Gray to attack that camp in the middle of the night of the, um, I hope I'm getting these dates right. I think it's the night of the 20th and the 21st. I hope I have that right. Um, to attack that camp. And um, Wayne actually gets forewarned of it. His pickets come in and tell him that the British are coming. And they actually, it, one of the myths of the battle is that they're caught in bed. They're not caught in bed. The, his division is actually awake, uh, uh, clothed, uniform, like equipped, and they get into a column to march out of there before they get attacked. The problem is there was a fence line between uh, his camp and the road out of there. And they did, there was an opening in the fence line, but as the artillery is pulling through the opening, one of the artillery pieces overturns and blocks the avenue of escape. And so his arm, his division is lined up in a, in a column, the march, and they get attacked at the rear end of the column by the British, um, and because uh, they're, they're not deployed for battle. And so it becomes a massacre because it's the middle of the night, it's dark, uh, Americans are getting uh, uh, bayoneted as the British are sweeping through this, this column, and that's why it becomes a massacre, not so much because they weren't awake, they weren't in a position to fight, they were in a position to march, and then they're at, they're, their escape route got blocked. So at what point does Howe decide to go for Philadelphia? Uh, well, the whole campaign was about going for Philadelphia. I don't think Howe was ever going to go for those backcountry settlements. He does tell the British government he's going to do that, but he really can't because he can't get away from his river routes. So, um, but ultimately he goes for Philadelphia after he gets across the Schuylkill River. So with the, with the Wayne threat eliminated, Howe maneuvers the, the, the morning after the Battle of Paoli, they maneuver into where the Valley Forge encampment will later take place. Washington now has to make a decision. Do I defend Philadelphia? Do I defend the backcountry? He chooses to defend the backcountry. So he's going to maneuver away from the Schuylkill River fords, opening up the, those um, access points across the Schuylkill for the, for the British Army. They will cross the Schuylkill River on September 23rd at a place called Fatland Ford. It's roughly behind where the, 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 the chapel is today in Valley Forge Park. Uh, they will maneuver into the Norristown area, camp for a night. On the 25th, they will maneuver into Germantown, down Germantown, what's today Germantown Avenue, and camp at Germantown. And then on the morning of the 26th, a British column under Charles Cornwallis will occupy Philadelphia. So once uh, the British troops get into Philadelphia, was the Royal Navy waiting for them, or were they still on the Chesapeake Bay? No. Um, at this point, um, by the time they occupy Philadelphia, the Royal elements of the fleet have now come back around from the Chesapeake. Um, the rest of it will soon join them, and they will. Uh, they're basically down roughly where Wilmington is. Some of them are starting to maneuver up towards uh, where Chester, Pennsylvania, is today but they cannot access Philadelphia, which is a huge problem for William Howe. There was a series of defenses that the Americans had in place to, def to prevent the British fleet from coming up the Delaware River. Um, there was three fortifications, one at a place called Billingsport, which is where modern Paulsboro, New Jersey is today. 
There was um, another one in the New Jersey, sold, New Jersey side called Fort Mercer, which is uh, basically directly across the river from the Philadelphia airport today. And a third one on what was then an island, um, a fort called Fort Mifflin, which is literally right next to where the Philadelphia airport is today. Um, and then there was a series of sunken obstructions in the river called Chevaux de Free that were chained together. And um, they could stop ships from coming up the river. And so the forts were positioned to prevent the British from removing the Chevaux de Free. They were like the, the anchor ports for those obstructions. And so the fleet could not get to the river at this point. So the, uh, the Continental Army had experienced defeats at Brandywine and the Battle of the Clouds and Paoli. Why did Washington decide to take offensive action at Germantown? There's, that's, that's a million dollar question. I think he's under a great deal of political pressure. At this point, um, Horatio Gates has won the first battle of Saratoga. And so there was a lot of accolades coming from the Northern Continental Army, which are subordinate to him technically, but the, the commander of that Northern Army is getting a lot of praise. There's, um, there's a lot of pressure on Washington to get a win because negotiations with the French government are ongoing for the alliance. Um, and then William Howe makes a series of decisions that weakened his, his, his main army. Remember when they were down at Brandywine, he sent a garrison to Wilmington. So that was a detachment from the main army. Then he sends a very large detachment to occupy Philadelphia. So they are detached from the main army. And then um, three days before the Battle of Germantown, two more regiments are detached to go seize um, that fortification at Billingsport I mentioned previously. So the army that, or the force that's left with William Howe in Germantown is a much weaker one than the one he attacked Washington with at Brandywine. Um, and so Washington sees an opportunity. Um, his theory, I think, is if he could destroy that force at Germantown, I might be able to get in a position to bottle up the Cornwallis force in Philadelphia by you know, setting up some sort of a, a, a line on, on, that, on that peninsula, that, you know, create a, for, a line between the Schuylkill and the Delaware Rivers and block Cornwallis's force in Philadelphia. Because remember, the Americans still control the forts at this point. And so that, I think, was the plan, was to, dis to crush that force in Germantown and then basically uh, besiege and starve out Cornwallis in Philadelphia. Did the fact that uh, Powell had moved his troops into Philadelphia give George Washington any breather room in terms of uh, preparing his troops? Um, in some sense, because Howe becomes very preoccupied with the need to open up the Delaware River to his fleet, or to his technically his brother's fleet, his, his brother's the admiral of the fleet, Richard Howe. Um, and he's not really concerned with sending out um, expeditions to harass Washington at this point. So in a sense, yes, Washington has roughly, let me think about this, from the time Howe occupies Germantown to the, to the battle, there's about, a, um, I'm trying to do the math real quick, so it's about a nine-day period or an eight-day period. So Washington has some time to regroup. He'll spend quite a bit of time at a camp near um, Faulkner Swamp, which is roughly near modern-day uh, Hegleysville. Um, sort of northwestern Montgomery County today, um, regrouping, 
um, um, getting recruits in, getting some reinforcements from the Northern Army. The uh, Maryland and New Jersey militia will join his army. He will then slowly maneuver down into uh, uh, an area known as the Methacton Hills. Um, it's outside of modern uh, trap today, um, where he makes the ultimate decision to assault. But he's allowed to do all that without any harassment from Howe. So in a sense, the occupation of, the, of Philadelphia does give, some, give Washington some breathing room. Now, Washington would have come up with a plan where he had four different columns moving separately uh, to attack Germantown. Was that something that he was confident that the Continental Army could, could achieve? I don't know how he could have been confident with it. It's, it's super ambitious. He attempts something similar for the Battle of Trenton the previous year. Um, off the top of my head, again, I'm not, not my area of expertise, but there's three or four columns that are supposed to attack Trenton that day, and two of them never even crossed the Delaware River. Or, um, so he had attempted this before, and it didn't work. Uh, although he does find victory, Trenton, don't get me wrong. Um, but the idea of getting four columns to one spot, uh, you know, without radios and GPS and the Internet, to do this with stopwatches or you know uh, uh, pocket watches, um, and the timing of it is is stunning. Plus, the, the, they're going to do it overnight, march all night to come down four different roads, and hit the British camp from four different points at the same time. It was uh, it was stunningly aggressive, and optimistic. And the and the shocking thing is, they pull off that part of the battle plan. We, you know, I would bet within 15, 20 minutes, all four columns got to where they were supposed to get to and start attacking the British camp. So at that point, on the morning of October 4th, which was the first American column to enter into combat? That's debatable. Um, again, they, I actually think they all attack within about 15 minutes of each other, but the first one to probably, the very first one to finally hit is probably John Sullivan's column. They had marched down, um, for, the, for those of our viewers that are familiar with, with the region, they marched down what's today modern Route 73 um, to the intersection of Bethlehem Pike. They go down Bethlehem Pike in the Chestnut Hill, the village of Chestnut Hill, uh, and then that's where they make the left onto uh, what's today Germantown Avenue, and then they will start, start their assault on the Mount Airy section uh, uh, of the city today, which was just sort of a cluster of houses at the time, um, but first contact is made on the on the on the hill, Mount Airy, uh, sort of between Chestnut Hill and Germantown proper. Were the British surprised? Yes, uh, stunningly. Even though there were reports that came in overnight, and there is evidence in in the British documents and and, and diaries that some elements of the army were aware that the, the Americans were coming. Some elements of the army had actually been alerted and told to get up. Um, but Washington gets a little lucky because the, the, the elements of the British Army that John Sullivan hits were not alerted and were not out of bed. And so they do catch um, the Second Light Infantry Battalion by surprise, and they're going to have some great, phenomenal initial success in the battle. How far did the American troops get in in that early period? Pretty far. Um, um, the, uh, the two main Continental columns under John Sullivan um, and Nathaniel Green's column that's going to come down Lime Kiln Pike, they are going to crush basically the entire right flank of the British Army and drive them almost to Market Square in Germantown, which is, is still there today. 
Um, the other two elements, which were both militia columns, don't have as much success and don't drive in um, the left flank of the British camp, but those two continental columns had an amazing amount of success and drive a good, it's a couple miles that they drive the British force. So given that the Continental Army had, had not had a lot of success uh, in its past, did, did they know what to do once things were going their way? Um, there's a lot of confusion, it's a good question. Um, and there's multiple reasons for the confusion. Um, the two most obvious are there was a, an incredible amount of dense smoke, or not smoke combined with dense fog that morning. And so these American units that have success, um, they, they start to get to the point where they can't see what's in front of them. Um, and they don't realize how far they're driving the British forces. There's a lot, and then that's gonna lead to a lot of uh, musket volleys shot at nothing. And so there starts to become an ammunition issue for those frontline units that did the initial attack. And they start to run out of ammo. Um, and then they also need to regroup because they start to sort of bump into each other in the smoke. There's friendly fire incidents. And there's a lot of confusion for those, those units that had the initial success. And in the midst of that confusion, uh, Washington actually, I think, planned to rotate fresh troops to the front. He had a fresh division of North Carolina and New Jersey troops that had not been engaged yet. And I actually think that they were meant to rotate forward with because the, they were fully supplied with ammunition to continue the attack and to continue to drive the British force. But prior to the deployment of that fresh division, the third problem, so you have the, the fog, running out of ammunition, and then the third problem was um, a single regiment of British troops during the retreat, um, at least parts of that regiment, the 40th Regiment of Foot, ran into Benjamin Chu's country house, uh, known as Cliveden, barricaded the first floor, and started uh, shooting at elements of the, Ameri of, the, of the Continental Army that's marching up uh, the Germantown Avenue, which is, I don't know, uh, 100, 150 yards from the house. And so a, a, a huge heated debate is gonna take, take place about what to do with Cliveden, which is gonna turn the whole tide of the battle. Now you mentioned that there was a, he held a council of war at this point. Uh, in the middle of a battle like that, should, should he be holding a council of war or should he just be making the decision <laughs> on the fly? That is a great question. Um, should he be doing in the middle of a battle? My opinion, no, you're the, you're the commander in chief of the army. You need to make a decision and there's no time to waste. That said, he has a long history of councils of war to get a consensus and a sense of what the right decision is. Had he done it during a battle previously, off the top of my head, I wanna say no. Um, and it's a huge mistake here, um, I think. Um, and the debate basically boils down to, um, I believe between Henry Knox, the chief of artillery, and, T and Timothy Pickering, who is the Army's adjutant general. He's the senior staff officer for Washington. And Knox basically is, is um, endorsing this idea that you can't leave a castle in your rear. And he's referring to the stone house at Cliveden that you can't leave those troops there, that we have to deal with those between before continuing the battle. Pickering takes the opposite view. Pickering says we need we leave one regiment to keep an eye on that house and to keep those guys from coming out of that house, and the rest of the army moves forward. 
I believe Pickering was right. That, that regiment shooting out the windows was not going to stop a fresh division from marching up the road. Uh, it was just not going to happen. Um, but Washington chooses to listen to Knox, and the whole battle turns into a debacle as they attempt to deal with Cliveden. Now, at some point during the battle, Howe's forces mount a counterattack. Was Washington, did he anticipate that there would be a counterattack? Was he prepared for it? I would, I'm going to say no, he was not, because they became so preoccupied with Cliveden. And what happens is a series of events take place at Cliveden. Uh, first, they try to pound the house with artillery, but the house has got very thick stone walls, and the artillery did nothing to the house, like other than shatter windows, blow in the front door, you know, destroy the uh, statuary that was, you know, it was a country home that was in the yard. Um, but it doesn't drive the British out. So then two regiments of New Jersey Continentals, the, the first and the third, charge up the, the, the carriageway, the driveway of the house to, to assault the house, which is just an insane scene if you think about it. And that doesn't work as they're getting picked off from the second floor windows. They're getting shot down in the yard. And then what happens is the units that were on the front lines, uh, John Sullivan's troops and Anthony Wayne's troops and Adam Stevens' troops that had driven the British in towards Market Square, hear all the shooting going on to their rear. And so elements of the front line units start to reverse course to go deal with this shooting they hear behind them. And so now, so now you have units peeling away from the, 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 the fighting with the main British force. And so when the British were able to regroup and counterattack, those frontline troops were out of ammunition, and most of them were already moving towards the rear. And so they were completely unprepared for the counterattack. So as the American troops then responded to the counterattack, did, was it an organized retreat? I'm going to say, I'm going to say it was a, a retreat similar to the way they retreated from Brandywine. It wasn't a disorganized route where there was no command structure whatsoever. Um, but I, don't, I also don't want to say they retreated as whole brigades or whole divisions, but I, 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 they definitely kept their regimental structures together as they fell back. Um, there is a rear guard action that's going to take place um, near White Marsh Church where the intersection of um, Route 73 and Bethlehem Pike is today. So it's not a disorganized route, but they're, not all, they're also not capable uh, of really trying to stand up to the British at this point. So even though this would end up being a defeat for the American forces, they, they did have some successes in terms of coordinating the four columns and initial success in the battle. Mm -hmm. What did they take away from this? That they could stand the toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British, that they're not as bad of a fighting force as the British think they are. And the British, uh, you know, the, the journals that you read in the British officer corps in the aftermath of the battle were, were somewhat stunned um, you're going to have to respect Washington a little bit more after this. So um, they're, they're, they're close. Now, Valley Forge will put them over the top, the training they're going to get at Valley Forge, but they're getting there. Brandywine kind of started them on that process. Germantown was another step in that direction. And then when they come out of Valley Forge, they're a, they're a respectable fighting force that's going to fight at Monmouth. So with this battle, Germantown occurring similar around the same time that Saratoga was taking place, what, what, what's the larger strategic effect of these battles? The strategic effect is, is it's going to lead to the French alliance. Now, everybody credits, rightfully so, Saratoga leading to that French alliance. But if you look at um, 
the writings of the French foreign minister and John Adams, who's over there, um, and Ben Franklin, who are negotiating the alliance. If you look at their writings, they all credit Germantown equally with Saratoga, with uh, that sort of pushing the French to that last uh, hurdle of signing the alliance. And, and the reasoning is um, they were impressed that Washington launched an offensive attack against the main British army. It was the first time Washington does that because the attack at Trenton was against a detachment of the British army, not the main British force. So the fact that he was, even though he lost, that willingness to launch that assault, that offensive attack, was impressive enough combined with Saratoga to push the British, the, the French over the edge to create the alliance. Now you mentioned earlier that uh, Howe would eventually resign. Did, mm -hmm. did this battle influence his resignation? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I think it was a combination of factors. I don't want to say it was just Germantown. He's, he's frustrated with the British government. Um, I think he's frustrated with what happened to John Burgoyne, even though he has some blame for that himself. Um, he feels like he's not being supported by the British government. He's always asking for significant numbers of reinforcements. Um, and he, he feels that the fact the British government doesn't give him what he wants, he's never going to achieve success, and he doesn't want to be responsible for, for losing the war. Um, so I, I don't want to say it's just Germantown. Um, I think he, he was already frustrated with um, the, what he felt was a lack of support by the British government. Um, so he, he actually sends in his resignation letter not long after Germantown, but he sticks around. He doesn't actually leave until it's either late May or early June 1778, so he's there the whole winter. Um, and he will actually launch another offensive effort in December, um, and he's also responsible for um, the, the taking down of the British or the Delaware River forts that lead to British access to the, to the city by the Navy. So he's going to be there for the rest of the campaign, even though he resigns. Well, Michael Harris is the author of the book Germantown, A Military History of the Battle of Philadelphia, October 4th, 1777. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.